Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Pablo Zabaleta. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier and the start of my coverage from Qatar. First story just went up over the weekend and lots more to come there, but taking some risks uh, by doing that. So I hope you uh, might consider a paid subscription. I'd really appreciate that. In any case, in segment one, Chris and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Pablo Zabaleta in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Now, I'm very excited about today's interview guest because, uh, believe it or not, Pablo Zabaleta is one of the reasons that I'm a Manchester City supporter. At the first game that I went to at Craven Cottage, uh, they, it was Man City. I think they beat Fulham like 4 or 5-1. It was the year they got relegated under Rennie Mullenstein and I think then Felix McGaff. I think he joined later that season. <laughs> and... Uh, like city were just they're romping so like whenever whenever that happens the away supporters just start singing all their songs and they had this song about pablo zabaleta i'm like what are they singing and i i couldn't tell until we got on the concourse and they were saying basically saying and i'll bleep this pablo zabaleta is the man and so they just kept singing it over and over because the lyric ends with and when we win the league we'll sing this song again and they just would start over again so for five straight minutes they're singing this song i'm like zabaleta love that guy so uh i'm a, I'm a huge zabaleta fan so i'm, I'm thrilled he's on the pod yeah he was great very like pronounced british accent i almost called him a fancy lad <laughs> yeah I, I i always enjoy uh inter miami have a new player robert taylor who's who's finnish and spent a lot and spent a lot of time, but he also spent two or three years in England, and so he has like a Scandinavian mixed with an English accent. Nice. So like when he nice. speaks English, there's like a hint of it there. I always find fascinating how accents combined. Fantastic, but yeah, really enjoy that interview. Uh, I think you will too. But let's start with some soccer talk from the weekend. Another busy soccer weekend on both sides of the ocean. And once again, as has been the case in how many straight podcasts in a row, we've got non-soccer stuff really uh stuff off the field to talk about uh before last couple episodes it's been russia uh this time it's in mexico Querétaro against atlas over the weekend and fan violence breaking out in the stands no real security police presence at all and a lot of murkiness still about what actually happened here because what you saw on video was just truly terrible and awful and looked like people had died just based on stuff you had seen photographs etc the official story as of right now from mexico is that there were no deaths obviously i would love for there to be no deaths i don't know if i believe the official story because i know it's in their interest to have it not be any deaths uh but just a terrible situation and a real uh just awful awful uh bit of news from Mexico to kind of cast a pall over the weekend. Yeah, and th- there's a few things here. One, there was a similar brawl between Atletico San Luis, and I forget which other set of supporters. I'll have to look this up as we carry on, but that was only a couple of years ago. And it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, number one, why the tribunas or the, or the barras that, that are the, the main supporter sections in Mexico aren't separated by clubs. Like, I was one of the things that I found strange in watching Liga MX and covering Liga MX is, you know, for 10 to 15 minutes before each broadcast that I did, um, they would show crowd shots, and there were fans of teams mixed. And normally it's not a problem, but when things kick off, 
they're all in and amongst each other. There is no security separation between uh, the two. Even in MLS, you'll see like, all right, we'll put all the supporters of one team in this corner, and yeah, maybe a few uh, will we'll, we'll mix in through the crowd, but you know, it's not that big of a deal. So you have you have that problem. I think the the fact that you mentioned that you can't really trust. The reporting of this is kind of a bummer because, I mean, I went to journalism school, albeit did not put it to practice like you did, and they tell you, like, use official sources, like the government, the police, otherwise it's allegedly. And so the fact that you can't get an official word on what happened here, because if there were deaths, which like you said, the video suggests that there very well may have been, that's a real turning point in conversation about fan violence that's a real turning point in you know for for mexico to have as a conversation what are we doing to solve this problem what are we doing to increase security what are we doing to increase policing around these events how are we stopping this from happening again and i don't think that conversation really kicks off in earnest unless we have a real accounting of what happened here until we figure out how how in the world was this allowed to happen and We've talked about fan violence issues throughout the world in in France, uh, it leading to multiple games being abandoned in England with you know coins being tossed onto the field, and th- there has been an increase after the pandemic, and we're all dealing with that collective trauma and trying to sort through what happened. We're nearing on two years of lockdowns and and various forms of the of the state of the pandemic, so. I think there's so much to sort through here, but we don't really begin until we figure out exactly what happened here. And I will admit, my first thought was, you and I are both going to be in Mexico City for USA-Mexico in two and a half weeks. And you immediately like become concerned about going and what happened. I mean, in US-Mexico is a greater rivalry than Querétaro and Atlas is. And so what happens when we go? Are, are these issues going to be fixed? And the world will be watching. Yeah, it's, it's a good point, you know. And, and I wrote a column just a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, encouraging American fans to go to the Azteca for this World Cup qualifier between the U.S. and Mexico. And, and what I said was, my experience there, and I've been there several times now, is that uh, outside the stadium, I've always felt very welcome in Mexico City for any game, including against the US. Inside the stadium, it's much more tense. But even then, I've never seen violence between the different fan bases. And the US fans do have security. They have a section of the stadium. Um, I am a bit concerned now because this suggests that there really could be some issues. Uh, There weren't any really that I know of in Cincinnati. Uh, for the game in November, but it gives me pause. It gives me pause for a lot of reasons, just because of the climate, as you say, because of the lack of security and police presence. Um, it's it's an issue. And, um, you know, like, it, it, it's inter- interesting what you say about reliance on police reports, official reports, even this weekend, right? So Brittany Griner comes out, the basketball player, uh, according to Russian police reports, has been detained for the last three weeks in Russia for allegedly having some sort of hashish oil like CBD type stuff. Um, and the tweet that I had on that was, in the last couple of years, and I'm thinking of various situations that have happened in the United States, we've learned not to trust police reports as gospel on the facts, right? And 
So if that's the case in the U.S., I'm certainly not going to trust Russian police reports on Brittany Griner and, and anything that she may or may not have done. Obviously, hope her situation gets rectified and she can get the heck out of there. Um, but I, I don't trust the, the police or officials in, in Mexico to release legit information here. So uh, that's that's a problem. Um, and it was crazy, too, that Liga MX ended up going ahead and continuing with their games on Saturday night instead of suspending them. They actually made the right call, suspended them on Sunday. No games took place. But um, just a, a really horrible situation there. And we'll see if we ever get any um, any sort of accurate uh, accounting uh, of what's happened. But um, I feel... I'm bummed out kicking off the podcast with this, but I think it's important that we do it. Um, making the jarring transition to soccer, um, Jesse Marsh had his first game with Leeds United. It was at Leicester City, and Leeds totally outplayed them and lost 1-0. Um, and Harvey Barnes' goal, second half, totally dominant in the second half until that point Leeds was under Marsh but they couldn't finish missed a couple really good opportunities had a lot of set pieces more shots and the expected goals wasn't even close and yet Leeds needs points if they want to stay up and so if you're a Leeds fan I think there's a, a probably a, a satisfaction to some extent that the performance was so much better under Marsh in his first game but a, you know, a real frustration that zero points came out of it. Yeah, and the, the only respite right now is that Burnley got hammered this weekend, Watford lost, Norwich lost, and right now you just have to be better than those teams right now, which is a very low bar. So you get that little bit of a let off, but given the fact that they've played more games and they're going to play Thursday at home against Aston Villa and then Sunday at home against Norwich... Those are two huge games. And for them, like you really want six points from six there. But then Villa goes out this weekend and hammers Southampton. They seem to have righted the ship a little bit after a bit of a wobbly period under Steven Gerrard. They'd be Brighton 2-0 and then Southampton 4-0. Um, but you're right in terms of the assessment of that performance. Um, Leeds deserve more. They probably deserve to win if you look at those XG numbers. Um, Rafinha had a tap in from three yards out that he hit right at Kasper Schmeichel, who made a couple of really good saves in that game. Um, and I think you started to see, all right, well, leads are not going to be as open if you, if you don't play in a man marking system that is fairly <laughs> self-evident. Um, and they have the right intensity to keep pressing and just do it in a different way. I thought Matt Holland, who was on the world feed commentary, did a really good job of kind of outlining, okay, but they're also stepping over each other positionally. They're not, they haven't quite figured out that 4-2-4 diamond, 4-2-2-2, whatever you want to call it, look that the Red Bull clubs are known for playing, the Manchester United played in the Manchester Derby, that they're still probably a bit too narrow, a bit too on top of each other. It's a lot of wide players trying to figure it out. You have Harrison, Dan James, and Rafinha all on the pitch, all trying to fly forward. Um, you're still trying to get Patrick Bamford and Calvin Phillips back. So there's still a lot of things to figure out, and Jesse Marsh doesn't have a lot of time to do so. So uh, I watched all of the press conference. I was fascinated by the Marsh story okay. heading into the weekend. I watched his entire 40-minute press conference. I watched all the interviews because I really am fascinated to see how the Leeds fans receive him. And 
You still have like the ten percent that are, you know, I'm like he he must say dude all the time at the training ground. Like you, I, you see those comments all the time. But you also see a lot of fans like, oh, I kind of like how he talks, and I was kind of encouraged by the performance. Um, but he needs at least one win from his next two. Certainly against Norwich, that's un unquestioned. You have to beat Norwich at home, and you probably would like a point out of the Villa game. Otherwise, they're really banging trouble. You know what, though? I'm going to watch both those games, all 90 minutes, just like you. I watched all of Jesse Marsh's press conference just to get a sense of that. I followed the coverage. I mean, there was an idiotic statement made on British media by Gabby Lahore today uh, criticizing the huddle that Jesse Marsh had after the game on the field saying, oh, you can, you should do that in the locker room, dressing room, whatever he was saying. Um, that's stupid. You know, like, like why don't you at least talk about how they played, you know? Um, I, and and I, I hesitate to even mention it because then it makes us look like American thin skin, whatever. But like, that kind of stuff is so stupid. And in Marsh didn't even have to deal with that in Germany. At least, he, you know, he avoided that. In England, of course, he has to deal with it. Um, but in terms of, like, the fingerprints of Jesse Marsh on this team, you saw a few things, right? You saw set-piece variety. There was a, They had a lot of set-piece opportunities from free kicks, corners, and there was a lot of different stuff that was going on. And that's stuff that Jesse Marsh always did back in his New York Red Bulls days ever since. Um, and I think it didn't really produce anything in terms of specific goals this time, but I think it could help moving forward. And also just like what you mentioned, he's not man marking. So it's high pressure, but it's zonal. And you're not going to leave these just enormous gaps like Leeds has been leaving, had been leaving under Marcelo Bielsa that just allowed the scores to skyrocket uh, in terms of conceded goals. And they looked tighter defensively. And the fullbacks didn't push forward as much until a little bit in the second half. Um, you know, like when Marsh was at Leipzig, that was a concern leaking a lot of goals. And, and so that's something that can't continue, did not continue in this game. When you look that they had been conceding 4.25 goals per game over the previous four league games before this. So just to give up one, um, that's encouraging, I guess, but it's all about staying up. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all about getting enough points on the board uh, in the run into the season to survive. And, you know, he's got 11 games left, and that's a really small sample to judge a manager. So, so he is properly up against it. Uh, I, I do want to address, I, I saw that you, you, you tweeted at, uh, I think it was Sebastian Salazar, who was saying that, uh, that you know, you want to see American coaches get opportunities not under American ownership. Leeds is not entirely under American ownership, but the San Francisco 49ers are heavily invested in Leeds. Uh, what, what, what did you make of that point? And I, I think we've talked about that on this podcast before, that some of the other Americans, in, in particularly in the transfer window, are getting opportunities with American clubs. But uh, what, what did you make of that criticism? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we've had Sebi on the show. He's a friend of mine. I, I think even Sebi would say that he likes to tweak what he views as the U.S. establishment uh, as much as possible. And, and does so, as does Herc on their show. Um, and, and they're usually very good at it. In this particular case, I think there were several examples out there of American coaches who have been hired by teams not owned by Americans, including Jesse Marsh at Leipzig and Salzburg, um, or even Pellegrino Matarazzo at Stuttgart. Uh, so 
you know, there's there's plenty of examples of American coaches. There's actually not that many examples of American coaches in Europe, but there's several examples of those who have not been hired by American-owned teams. Though that said, I mean, like, um, I don't think it has hurt that, um, you know, we talked about Ricardo Pepe going to Augsburg, and that's certainly got David Blitzer as an American who has an influence as part of the ownership group there. So, um, so we'll see. Um, I don't think it's a situation, though, necessarily where every single American coach in Europe has been hired by an American-owned team. That's just not the case. Agreed. And uh, you, you do, you know, hope, though, that, you know, maybe the 49ers being invested is part of the reason why he has the gig, but now you hope that he is qualified and good enough to hold on to it, prove himself, and Americans will continue. Uh, like, that. that is a door-opening opportunity, just as Christian Pulisic Seating at, uh, succeeding at Chelsea, he scored again at the weekend against Burnley, um, is a door-opening opportunity for Americans to go to European clubs on the playing side. And I do think American coaches have an even farther way to go. They're earlier in the growth phase in Europe than American players are. I thought Brian Strauss at Sports Illustrated had the best point, which is Marsh is the first American coach over there to basically get a second chance mm. in Europe. Uh, after the Leipzig situation, because Bob Bradley didn't get a second chance. Uh, Greg Berhalter didn't get a second chance after being with Hammerby. Um, so that is a, a very good point, I think, and actually does speak to some growth there for the American coach. It's, you know, someday maybe we'll get to a point where one or two particular coaches like Jesse Marsh don't seem to have the entirety of the American coaching fraternity writing on whether they succeeded at, w at one particular job, but we're, we're still in that stage. Um, Want to mention quickly uh, some news about Weston McKinney. Max Allegri, the Juventus coach, comes out on Sunday and says that McKinney is indeed out for the season, which is a bummer, obviously. Um, that It's not terribly surprising, given that it's a broken foot, metatarsals. Um, you know, it's just so unfortunate because McKinney was in the best form of his career for quite a long period of time, both for Juve and for the U.S. men's national team. We knew he wasn't going to be involved in these March qualifiers. So now I guess the question is, from a U.S. perspective, if the U.S. has to go to the playoff in June in Qatar against presumably New Zealand, which you really want to avoid, would McKenney be available uh, and it's hard to know. <laughs> Just the possibility. I almost, I almost fell out of my chair. No, I, I don't. I don't even want to think about that. I don't want to think about needing to go to a playoff. Um, I, I will say, I mean, in the media term, we talked about it in a, re is a re in a recent episode, and I was kind of very definitive about saying, well, the U.S. should have enough depth, and I, I still believe that. But I mean, you know, now that it, there's the kind of the thudding finality that he's not going to play a club game until August, um, it's a it's a scary proposition because. He was playing really well, and he has so obviously taken steps forward at Juventus. I think playing playing under uh, Maxi Allegri has been incredible for his personal growth. Playing in that Juventus side has been great for his personal growth, and the incident that happened in September has clearly led to some personal growth as well. He's had a very important year in the development of his career. We're tracking the development of players. Christian Pulisic, I, I mentioned his goal earlier against Burnley. He's like he's playing week in, week out right now for Chelsea. Right. And and I don't think Thomas Tuchel wants to drop him. I think he's combining really well uh, with Kai Havertz, you know, in that forward line with Mason Mount. That trio really seems to be working for them. Uh, and you think about the attackers that he's keeping out of the side and Werner and Lukaku and Ziyech. That's hundreds of millions of pounds 
uh, in money. So I think the fact that Pulisic is clearly going through a stage in his development, like development is not is not linear. And part of our job as U.S. men's national team journalists is to track the progress. It's been a big year for Weston McKinney. And so the fact that it's over now before we get to the end of World Cup qualifying, before we get to the end of the Serie A season where Juventus is starting to turn around a little bit, it's a bummer. Let's talk Manchester Derby. 4-1 is the score, um, and yet this is one of those situations. Manchester City wins the game against Man United, and yet I felt like the score actually didn't indicate how much Manchester City was better than Man United in this game, particularly in the second half. Yeah, so there's one stat that really indicates this. Well, actually, there's multiple from that second half. Uh, Zero shots, 0.00xg, and for, for Manchester United in the second half. And in the last 15 minutes of the game, Manchester City had 92% possession. So did Man, did Man United give up? I think they did. I think they did. Like you said, like the score doesn't even indicate just how you know dominant City were in the second half. I will say, like after a half hour, I was ready to come on and say that was a really interesting tactical move from Ralph Ranić and how he deployed the team. Because yeah, it's the same system, but he put Pogba and Bruno Fernandez up top. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting creative idea. And you know, uh, Arlo White was talking a lot about how Pep Guardiola was unnerved in the technical area and was shouting and was telling guys to move into certain spaces and move around and we got a cover for this. It seemed like Ralph Rangnick threw something at Pep Guardiola that he was trying to adjust to and was actually, according to Arlo, like angry even as they were scoring the first goal, uh, which was a pullback uh, that was turned in by Kevin De Bruyne. So I, I was ready to come on here and say, well, I, I think Rangnick kind of came on, came out with some interesting ideas, but the second half was just a complete capitulation, which in a derby is so bizarre to see from Manchester United. And you hear all the... I heard Gary Neville's podcast uh, on the way home from calling the Inter-Miami game. And like he's just talking about, like, I can't believe that, you know, like, I had terrible Derby performances, but you never can question my commitment at the end of the game. And that's kind of what you're left thinking. And, you know, we talked a lot about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and I talked a lot about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as a manager who is ill-equipped to coach a team at this level. And maybe the answer is, is that Ralf Ranić, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer... Jose Mourinho, Louis van Gaal, and David Moyes are all ill-equipped to coach teams at this level, and they have been for 10 years. But there is also a very real possibility that Manchester United have a lot bigger problems than just who the coaches. Yep. And they have not built to a strategy. They have not had any coherent plan. None of those managers don't have anything in common. Like, there's no, okay, but at least we were trying to go for this. Over the, it's just like, all right, who's available? Let's bring him in. And hopefully, Ralph Ranić is given the opportunity from a front office technical director standpoint to build that out for Manchester United and say, this is who we're going to be, and I'm going to build to that manager, and we're going to keep this identity for a few years. But I think you just look at this playing squad that they've spent over a billion pounds, and their wage budget's like $330 million or something like that, just millions and millions and millions of pounds to try and solve this problem, and they seem farther away. And I think maybe this time we'll finally realize it's not just the coach, that it's a lack of an organizational philosophy, a club philosophy, a playing style, a coherent way that the pieces fit. And it seemed like they were actually on their way under Ole, and then they signed Cristiano Ronaldo. And now I, I think that's that set them back several years, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is a systemic problem with United. It's not down to individuals. Ronaldo wasn't available today. Hip flexor situation. Cavani not available again. Um, if you're a Man United fan, though, I got to think, 
even in recent years when over the length of a season, City was so much better than United, United still won their share of games in this rivalry. Um, and the performance today in the second half was so bad that if you're a United fan, I, I, I think your head's kind of exploding. Yeah, I mean, what? where do we go from here? I will say on the flip side, though, Manchester City was on a little bit of a wobbly run of form. You know, they had a really close game against Everton, probably should have conceded a penalty late in that one through Rodrigo, and Frank Lampard was rightly fuming after that one. Uh, they, they lost in the Premier League for the first time in that run. So they... Or in the first time in 2022 in that run. So it looked like they were opening the door for Liverpool to, to step back in, but then they give such an assured performance. The skill from Phil Foden for the goal that he doesn't even get any credit for, for the second goal, that looping touch, and then he strikes, and, and, and the the eventual rebound comes to De Bruyne, who finishes. Riyad Mahrez took a couple of beautiful goals today. So, I mean, the, the, the skill that they have to be able to bring Sterling and Gundogan off the bench and still just rip... Manchester United apart and like you were calmly kind of figuring out and finding the solutions it was kind of another Manchester City exerting themselves kind of performance they have a perfunctory game in the Champions League in midweek against Sporting which they'll easily get through the quarterfinal and I felt like they needed that in order to really go into that quarterfinal with confidence and going towards the run-in of this season with Liverpool winning yet again what have they won eight in a row now like they're hot on their heels so they need to continue to keep that distance. Is it bad that, I think they're ahead 5-0 on Sporting, right? Yeah. Uh, heading into the return leg this week, that I actually considered, what if there was a rule in, in Champions League that if you were like 5-0 up, or if you had a five-goal advantage into the return leg, that you could like have a fan take one of your 11 spots on the field for the return <laughs> leg? Like auction or like you're 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 ob, or ob, yeah or you're obligated to play like one of your like 15 year old academy kids or something like that. What if there was a mercy rule in the Champions League? We're just like if you win by five or more in the first leg, we just don't play the second leg. It just doesn't happen. Let's also talk about Charlotte, which had its first home game ever. Charlotte FC over the weekend against LA Galaxy set an MLS single game attendance record, more than 74,000 fans. And it took a tremendous goal from Efrain Alvarez for the 1-0 win for LA Galaxy, which is on six points after two games, after beating NY City in the opener. But just a really cool setting. I watched a fair amount of this broadcast um, in another new city for MLS in this country. Yeah, and... It's awesome to see these environments. Every time the, these games kick off, ML, MLS have a formula for getting people through the door and getting people excited. And it seemed like everyone in the crowd had jerseys. And you know, I was reading, I was, I was scrolling through my TikTok feed this morning of you know some of the some of the videos as well. And you look at the comments section, and the, I saw one person was like, "Oh, so that's what was going on." Like, and then like, okay, maybe they maybe they'll go to the next game. But you know, the concern at the moment is. With Charlotte, are they going to build on this? Because the team does not have a lot of talent, particularly in wide areas and in attacking areas. They were trying. I actually think that they're pretty well drilled, that they know who they want to be. But once the ball gets into attacking areas, they just don't have a lot of answers. And so 
are people going to come back, I guess, is the question. And it's an NFL stadium, and so you want to get at least 30,000 through the door every week to fill out a lower bowl or to not make it look sad because uh, New England reported like 14,000 in Gillette Stadium this weekend, and I saw a picture, and it looked sad. So, you know, to play in an NFL stadium, if you're not playing well, if you don't have a great team, if you don't have momentum, uh, you know, would be a concern. But look, on opening day, Awesome. The noise of the stadium was awesome. It played really well. It was a big occasion. I hope a lot of people watched it on Network Fox. It was a good event to put on network television. But my concern is, is are those people that went going to want to go to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one? Because, uh, you know, you're you're asking a lot of your fan base to sell out an NFL stadium. Uh, I, I watched uh, Inter-Miami at Austin today. I think Austin's going to be one of these clubs that has that kind of staying power. Now, it's a smaller venue, but... That that fan base is like even when they were bad last year, they were amped to right. go to games. They build atmosphere. I think that city loves that team, and I just hope that it's going to be the same in Charlotte because it's a really cool city. It's it's grown a lot in the last couple of years. It's uh, kind of become younger and more uh, millennial centric. So it's a city that, in theory, should work. But uh, you know, I I hope that they get better so that they get better crowds to the door. It is pretty incredible, though, for anyone who's followed MLS like we have for quite a while. The southeastern part of the United States used to be just uh, a blank zone where there were no teams, especially after the contraction of the two Florida teams in 2001. There was basically nothing in that whole section of the country. And now there's a bunch of teams that actually do quite well attendance wise, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Nashville, maybe Charlotte here. Uh, You've got Orlando, you've got Miami. I mean, you've got like a lot of teams in that part of the country. And so the big expansion push in MLS in recent years has been in this part of the country. And that's all great. I guess one question I would have for you from a pure soccer perspective, it's very early in the season, right? But would you be more concerned about, from a soccer perspective, Charlotte, Cincinnati, (laughs) or Inter-Miami? Yeah, so I think with Charlotte, the the one thing that has me concerned is they're still trying to put together so many pieces, and so many of their pieces are unproven, right? Like even the guys that they've spent money on don't have... MLS league experience. The guys that they threw out there that have league experience are Brant Bronico, Jordy Reyna, and Jalen Lindsay, who is probably like the the best of the lot just in terms of his prospects. He's a young guy, came through at Kansas City, but those other guys are MLS journeymen. So they basically have nobody who like has a track record in MLS. And so that's why I really have concerns for them, or at least, you know, in Cincinnati. Their result got better this weekend. They were unlucky to concede a late penalty. Um, But Charlotte, I think, has just so much to prove from coach to player to front office all the way down. Like, they're they're trying to express themselves in an identity, but it's so unproven in the league that I just don't know what it's going to be week to week. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And and we'll see, you know, like... Austin's had two games. They scored five goals in both games, but they were against really poor opposition. So it's it's hard to know how good Austin is. It's hard to, to know how good DC United is. They had two wins against poor opposition. Um, and there's 28 teams in the league. So it's going to take a little while for things to shake out a little bit. Plus, even a team like Seattle's got zero points after two games. And they're focusing on CONCACAF Champions League, obviously. We have been talking entering the season about, oh, this Seattle team may be the best team on paper in the Americas. They're on zero points. 
Yeah, and and losing away at RSL and then uh, the conference newcomers on the opening day against Nashville. And again, you look at their squad on paper, it should be amazing. The the one thing that it reminds me of, though, uh, was Columbus from a year ago when everyone was hyping them as the best team in the league. I do have like slight concerns about teams that are built that much around older players. Um, yeah. I, I'm like I have my antenna up for this now. We're like you know Rui Diaz, Lodeiro, um, you know even Stefan Fry in goal. Um, like they they've got some older players, and so like that would be my only concern is uh, if you're if you're relying that much on those guys to stay fit, those guys to kind of deliver a quality of performance every week. But I I have no doubts that Seattle will will eventually find their footing. It might take them half a season as they get through the Champions League, but. Um, I think Seattle will be fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this league season, you look at the Red Bulls starting with six points from six. Um, there's some very mls results. I'd say actually the biggest of the weekend was San Jose coming from 3-1 behind, down to 10 men to uh, draw 3-3 with Columbus Crew, um, who, you know, absolutely gave that game away. You're a man up away at San Jose. That should be three points on the board, and uh, and and they didn't hang on. So yeah, there's some there's some odd results out there. I'd say Austin starting the season with ten goals from two games <laughs> after being the lowest scoring team in the West last year has got to be the biggest shock among them. As always, great to talk with you, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Pablo Zabaleta. Our guest now is Pablo Zabaleta, the former star right back for Argentina and Manchester City, among other clubs. Pablo, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So what brings you to New York? Well, I'm here as a Man City ambassador. Um, Obviously, we've been doing a lot of different stuff with the club. Uh, We've been in some school with the kids, playing some football. Now at the Puma store, doing some signing session, picture with the fans. You know, that's always good to, for the club and as an ex-football player to, to come and represent the club I love. So it's been great so far. What do you like about coming to New York City? Uh, well, that's a special uh, place. I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, New York. Every time I've been here to play games or to do some uh, activities in the city, it's been great. You know, a lot of activities to do and, and people from all, aw- all around the world. Um, I've been once watching some basketball game. Last night uh, we we tried with hockey. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's different. It's something that we don't have the opportunity when we live in Europe. We don't see much of this, obviously, on TV, but it's different when you are live. And uh, that's the only uh, thing when you are in America that you, you, you try to, to, to watch these kind of games. So... Manchester City is once again leading the Premier League, though Liverpool isn't too far behind. What has stood out to you about this season at Manchester City? Well, it's going to be tough. I mean, the the title race is very close now. Liverpool is only six points behind, and uh, I think they they have a game in hand as well. Um, So uh, probably two best teams in the league. Um, You know, both of them playing really good football at the moment both of them competing at their best. So it's going to be, you know, really um, entertaining uh, end of the season for sure. And and I obviously expect Man City to continue playing in the same way. Um, you know, the, the Champions League is also one of those competitions that probably the fans and players and Pep and all his staff would like to to be again and reach the final um, but yeah the Premier League is, is so tight at the moment it's going to be a, 
um, you know, really, really good until the end of the season. So you played for one season under Pep, yeah. right, at, at Manchester City. What did you learn about him that made him different from other managers you played for? Well, uh, he's a really good coach, I have to say, even if he spent only one season with Pep. He's um, one of those managers that for me is uh, above the rest. I mean, just because in the way he coached the team in on and off the field, I mean, um, you know, he um, tactically, he's just uh, like a genius. Um, you know, he always want to have the control of the ball. Um, always thinking on attacking, you know, and you know, trying to to entertain the the the, the public, the fans, and that's the only way he understands uh, football. And you can really see how the team uh, been playing in the last few years. It's just been it's been a joy to watch Man City playing football. Uh, but also off the field, I think he can really inspire the players in the way he talks, and he, he you know, he's so much passion about football. Uh, he speaks two or three different languages, so it's so easy for him to communicate with all the players. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a really good experience. I always say it was a shame that he came when I was nearly 33. Um, you know, I wish he would. You know, I was a lot younger, and probably we have spent a few more years with him. Uh, but yeah, I have to say one of those managers that for me has been, been a great experience to work with. When we talk about modern football, a lot of that has to do with how fullbacks are used in the modern game. And Pep in particular, but other managers too, seems like they have really revolutionized the fullback position. Do you agree with that? No, what, no, what yeah, I agree. See? No, no, no. It's that, that's true. Uh, Probably the, back in the old days, uh, uh, the fullbacks that were more defensive mind, right? Um, these days, uh, being a, as a fullback means that you have to be in, you know, um, all the time running down the flank, attacking uh, or supporting the attack every single time. Um, even we, you could really see how they bring the fullbacks on the inside to, you know, to create an extra man in the middle. Um, and yeah, probably these days as a fullback, you need to you need to understand how to how you can read the game, and uh, it's not just about defending anymore. You have to, as I said before, you need to be clever and support attack time after time. You know, overlapping runs as well, um, and that's all you expect, especially for the big clubs, for the big teams, um, and 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 you also need pace these days um, because uh, obviously uh, offensive and defensive transitions these days in football are a lot quicker as well so um, you need during 90 minutes you have to do both jobs you know you need to be good in in both uh, end of the field who are your favorite fullbacks in in world football right now uh, well I grew up uh, no no well I, w I would say probably from my time as a footballer for me um, uh, Sanetti was one of them that's, you know, uh, as Argentina, I, I, I watch a lot of uh, games of, of him when he was an Inter. For me, he was a legend. He's a legend and probably I grew up watching him playing football. But I also have to say that um, Philip Lamb, um, I don't know, Danny Alves, uh, Maicon, they were like, you know, top. Uh, you don't really see world-class fullbacks. Um, but these three or four guys uh, from my era as a footballer being like um, 
probably the best ones. If you had to pick one today? Uh, I would say Zanetti. Um, okay. Because he was um, pro- maybe technically not as good as uh, Danny Alves or something like that, or Philip Lambert. Um, you know, I love in the way he was uh, running up and down during 90 minutes. You know, big legs. He was, <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was so good. And and also spent a few games in the national team as well. So I really love Pupi. So, yeah, I am a big fan of him. You played professionally in England, in Spain, and in Argentina. What would you say about those football cultures and how they're different, how they're similar? Well, uh, as you know, in Argentina, we are mad about football. Um, fans have so much passion about this sport. And and that's something that then when you come to Europe, you you could really see also that, uh, you know, especially in England, it, it was very similar. Um, I... I remember, you know, going away from home, how the fans um, traveled to support a team. And, and, you know, that's something that you really uh, love as a footballer because the, the atmosphere at the stadiums uh, are great and uh, you always play in front of, um, you know, full stadium. And um, this is always what you expect as a football player, you know. And uh, England, I would say, I, I met England... It's a lovely place to, to play football and to enjoy life as well. Um, but for me, the Premier League is one of those competitions that once you're there, you never want to leave, you know, uh, because there's so much passion about football. A few years ago, on the fifth anniversary of the last day of the season in 2012, yeah. when Man City won the title <laughs> in that amazing game, yeah, crazy that you day. were in yeah, and scored in. Yeah, the forgotten goal. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I spoke to a bunch of different people about that day. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't speak to you. <laughs> what are your memories of that day? Uh, well, I would say that, you know, across my 18 years of, as a football player, that day is probably up there as one of the best of uh, my life. Why? Because uh, in the way that we won uh, the Premier League, um, you know, it is true that I scored the first goal, nobody, nobody remembers it. <laughs> Everyone remembers Aueros. Um, but, um, you know, Man City and Man United going into the final day of the season, both playing to win the league. Um, I, th- I remember that on, on, on TV they split, you know, the screen and they were showing like Manchester United fans celebrating because we were losing to one against QPR and um, and we needed two goals in in the last uh, four or five minutes and and it was you know crazy they you know Teco score a great header from a corner and then uh, Sergio was there at the right moment at the right time to to score the third goal and gave us a chance to to win the first Premier League medal um, so it, it was a cre- crazy end of the game so um it was one of those moments that I have a really good memories uh, from that day. You've played in a lot of big games over the years. You played in a World Cup final yes. in yeah. 2014, which I would, I guess I would argue is the biggest game in the world. Yes. Um, what is that like as a player emotionally? And like, what were you thinking about heading into playing in a World Cup final? Well, um, I remember the night before it was tough to, to get proper sleep. Um, because as you say before, you probably as a football player when when you, you it's one of those games that you dream to 
to play and and it was very special because it was Brazil, very close to our country, a lot of uh, Argentina fans around uh, playing in the Maracaná Stadium. Um, yeah, it was a shame that we lost. Um, but, uh, you know, all I can say that, you know, as a football player, it was a great experience to be involved in the World Cup final. Um, big memories as well from that game. Uh, and yeah, you know, uh, now I, I go like a small museum in my house and, and, and every time I, I see pictures of that game, is something I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm even I got two boys and every time, you know, I got a chance to say, look, daddy been uh, in a World Cup final. And that was amazing. Argentina won the Copa America last year. I, I'm not hiding anything. I'm, my, Argentina is my second country. I was very <laughs> happy that day. Um, That's great. What do you think about Argentina's chances in the World Cup this year in what most of us expect yeah. will be Messi's last World well, Cup? Well, if you could really see where uh, the final wish of everyone went to, you know, Hugh Messi and, and, and celebrate that uh, title with him because... Um, that's true that we lost three consecutive final, you know, the World Cup and then two Copa Americas on penalties against Chile and and it was quite tough, you know. Um, but um, yeah, Messi won the World Cup, uh, sorry, Copa America, Argentina as well after um, so many years. So um, it, it is a year that ha we have the World Cup and, and it's been... 29 games I think Argentina without losing so that invites to to believe and to be you know positive that hopefully is the year that Argentina got a chance to to win the World Cup that would be amazing imagine Messi I don't know how many years he got left in football he's getting older and and you know uh, we don't know how special that will be for for Messi and for the team and obviously for the whole country because we love football and yeah I wish all the best to the team in Qatar. I have a last few questions for you here but what I like to do with very accomplished players yeah. is to ask them some things about their career. So okay. like for instance what did you achieve in football that you are the most proud of and why? What do you mean in 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 football, like winning something, or in general? For you, the the thing in your career that you're most proud of. Um, well, I I always say I'm, I've been very lucky to to be a professional player because uh, you know a lot of people would like to to become a footballer and uh, been playing alongside so many great players. Um, but um, I would say that. I don't know, uh, playing in different stadiums, um, you know, as a child you always watch football and you're thinking, wow, I would, I would love to be one day playing in in one of those stadiums and that is something that after football you realise that how lucky we have been or, or something like that. But I would say, um, even, even with Messi, I'm from the same generation, he was... I was the captain of the under-20 team when, when Messi came for the first time. And so imagine that that was something very special as well. So I, I would say that, yeah, um, that moment is probably up there as one of the greatest, uh, 
you know, uh, moments in my football career. Who was the player you most admired in your career? Um, well, I'm, I was born in 1985. Um, Argentina won the World Cup in 86. In Mexico, I was too young. But I think uh, we all grew up watching Maradona. Um, Diego was uh, something else. Um, he was like a god for everybody in Argentina. And uh, I would say, you know, I just kept watching video of Maradona on, you know, playing football because that will, uh, it, it would take a long, long time probably to see something you know like that he, and he's he was a special character as well and and probably that's one of the greatest moments as a child that i go from from maradona he was uh you know an idol for me when i was young two more very quick questions one who was the best player you ever played against uh well uh, hazard probably yeah he always gave me a really tough times so, um when when he was at Chelsea, he was really good. Uh, not not the hazard of Real Madrid these days, but I remember playing against him. He was, um, yeah, Neymar. You know, he was too good, very quick, very skillful, very sharp. And as a fullback, he always been uh, hard. Also, I remember when I was playing uh, in Spain for Espanyol of Barcelona, prime Ronaldinho. Yeah. He was he was also so so difficult so i would say these two players probably was one of the, the most difficult uh players to to play against and lastly who was your favorite teammate um well i would say sergio Vero because uh we spent like um seven years together at man city uh we we both come come from the same country uh, now he's living in barcelona he's my neighbor so uh you know we've been spending a lot of time together so i would say that probably sergio was one of my best teammates pablo zabaleta thank you for coming on the show okay thank you it was a pleasure thanks for listening to football with grant wall i'd like to thank pablo zabaleta as well as producer and pundit chris whittingham you can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com the best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.